Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Academy I3 podcast, where our goal is to inquire, inspire, and impact the workforce in many different industries. My name is Charlie Rod Newson, and I am a Child Welfare Development Services Practice Coach at the Academy of Professional Excellence through San Diego State Research Foundation, where my goal is to work independently and in partnership with Riverside and Imperial County in coaching and workforce development services to public child welfare staff. I want to bring you a wealth of knowledge, experiences from our different guests that we bring on. And in today's episode, let's dive into our guests. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Um, And this is brought to you, of course, by the Academy of Professional Excellence. For this episode, we will be focusing on the topic of recognizing bias. And today we have a wonderful guest of Ellen Perez. I'm going to have her introduce herself. Ellen? Hello. How are you? Uh, Yes, I'm Ellen Perez. I'm one of the coaches with the Academy, and I currently coach in San Bernardino County. Um, Previous to that, I was a social worker and a supervisor in San Bernardino County also. So I am very fortunate that I get to coach in a county that I know a whole lot about and I'm very comfortable there. Uh, Previous to that, I worked as an adoption social worker uh, for a foster family agency. So I wrote the clinical adoption home studies. I carried some cases. I got to do a lot of matching, which is matching our foster families that are waiting for children with children who are in the foster care system waiting to be adopted. So that was lots of fun, lots of happy endings in in that role. And previous to that, um, I spent about five years working inpatient mental health at psychiatric hospitals. So I did that all through graduate school. So uh, yeah, 20, 21 years now, I think, coming up on 22 years. Yeah, you've really been through a lot of different experiences. And I'm sure a lot of that does inform your work as a coach as well, I would imagine. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, one of the best things that I did, and I always say that I force gumped my way into my career because I had no plans of becoming a social worker. Like that was not anywhere in the cards. Um, I actually went to school. Um, my undergraduate degree is in art and art history. And I come from a family of artists and wanted to you know, be an artist when I grew up kind of thing. And I had to take electives in undergrad and I started taking psychology classes and I was like, Ooh, art therapy with kids. That would be awesome. And so I went out of graduate school and, um, got my master's in psychology with the emphasis in marriage and family therapy to work with kids. And that's, um, you know, how I kind of got into the mental health field, And both my parents worked at psychiatric hospitals. So they had good connections, got me in the door um, at the ground floor, working with kids on like a child and adolescent psychiatric unit. And so I would lead therapy groups, um, feelings, identification groups, kind of stuff. And after that, um, I had a lot of frustration just because I would see the clients for an hour in a room And I couldn't, I couldn't follow them home and like actually see the behavior or coach the family through that temper tantrum or help them parent um, in a way that would be good for their child that was dealing with mental illness. And so I really decided like, I'm going to have to change and like get out in the field, you know? And so 
started looking for jobs as a social worker. And that's, I just kind of ended up in child welfare and now it's my favorite thing ever. I love child welfare as much as you can love child welfare, I guess. Um, yeah. So I, I somehow ended up here and it's the best thing that ever happened, but I think definitely starting off in the mental health field gave me this really strong background and comfortability working with people with mental illness. And so when I became a child welfare social worker for the County later on, it was comfortable to me. Whereas I think a lot of social workers straight out of graduate school go to work for their local County or, you know, state agency, and they have not experienced that before. And it's very off-putting to them. They're scared. They don't know how to relate. Um, they can't really engage the parents and conversations about safety and their mental health. And so that was easy for me because I had spent a lot of time doing that. So yeah, it was great to start off that way. Give me a, a really strong foundation, I think. That's really neat. And, and it's cool to see that, you know, with sort of your art background, that sort of creativity kind of comes into play, you know, as, as, your, as a coach, as well as just the experience you've had up to this point. Um, also impacts your role as a coach. So what do you feel like now as a coach uh, would be sort of your, your impact that, that you have in terms of coaching your learners, coaching the workers that you coach with? Mm, I think the impact of the coach is a huge impact on social worker practice. I think it takes someone outside of the situation sometimes to see it clearly, you know, you're, you're the social worker, you're, you're deep in the pit with this family. Sometimes you're, you get caught up in your emotions. You're just as frustrated as they are. Sometimes, um, sometimes we have a lot of, um, negative sentiment override. Sometimes we have positive sentiment override. Um, and I think it's, it's having someone outside that can help walk us through what's going on that helps us have um, the impact that we need to have as social workers. And so I don't know how to explain that a better way, but I think it's social workers being willing to, you know, look in the mirror, look at their practice, look at the growth that they need to do with a coach that allows them to continue to improve and provide better service to these families. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, it's really about, um, child safety and it's about how do we, better our service towards that. And, and especially how you mentioned with, you know, those emotions that can come up. Um, and, you know, as we get into our topic, you know, those biases may come up as well. And so having that sort of third party perspective that sort of helps to navigate through that in a safe environment can be really helpful. So, I mean, going into our topic today, you know, why do you feel recognizing bias is important in the social work practice? Oh, it's going to impact everything that we do with that family. It's, it's going to impact every, every little nuance of our practice. Um, it's going to impact how we talk to our clients on the phone. It's going to impact the decisions that we make on that case moving forward. It's going to impact how we present the family to management or in risk assessment meetings. It's, it impacts every little crevice of what we work with um, every day. And so I think it's important that we have like a coach, like an outsider that can, you know, help us walk through that a little bit and, and help us recognize it. Cause maybe we're not recognizing it or if we are recognizing it, what do we do about it then? 
And how do we continue to see it in our practice as it pops up? Because we might see it glaring in one situation and not see it at all in another situation. And so how do we get good at recognizing that behavior, naming that behavior? What do we do to follow up with that behavior so that we can be more objective and, you know, treat the families and children that we work with objectively, we can treat them all the same and be really focused on creating safety in the home. And what behavior does that parent need to do to create safety in the home versus, um, you know, well, that family is being really rude to me and I don't want to call them back. I don't feel like scheduling their visit because they were rude to me last time. Or every time I talk to them, they fly off the handle and yell at me. I don't want to deal with them. Um, that's not going to get us very far in practice. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it is paramount that we recognize bias that we have, or if we see bias in others that we're able to kind of help them see that as well, call that out a little bit for them. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, you know, since we both share sort of that mental health background, um, I think you'll, you'll kind of see this to be the case with a lot of times when say families may present with certain behaviors or they may, you know, they may, may present a certain way, it sort of may bring up something within the worker. Um, and so that, that mm-hmm. counter transference, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that, that part happens sometimes without even observing or knowing that it happens. And it, it's like, Oh, wow. Like I start to feel something when this family says something this way, or they, they sort of present in this way, I'm recognizing that something's coming up for me. Yeah. And we all have different buttons, right? Like there's certain kinds of clients or certain kinds of uh, patients at the hospital or certain kinds of, you know, families that we work with, um, maybe a certain type of perpetrator that are going to push our buttons and activate us. And that family might be one kind of family for me and one kind of family for you. And yeah, so I, I do have, um, social workers that are recognizing some of that in their practice, recognizing like, why am I so irritated by this kind of client? And I know I'm going to have a lot of them in my practice. You know, this is, you know, the type of person that I might come across a lot. And I really need to coach about that because I'm getting so activated that I just want to quit my job. And I've been here for two years. And I, I want to be a social worker. I want to help families, but I know I'm going to have a lot of this particular kind of client and I need to start addressing that. So I, I think it's amazing when I have social workers that want to coach on, on their bias, because that tells me like, man, they are really invested. They are trying to be insightful. They are trying to continue to grow and be better. And they realize that their career is not one of Uh, like I'm the professional, I'm the expert in the room and I get to lord this power over you. It's more of service-minded. Like I am here to help you. And how can I help you? You are the expert of your life. Let me just help you figure out where the gaps are and let's fill them in and let's do what's best for your family. So I love seeing those kinds of uh, social workers that want to come to coaching. Right. And, and, and you start to see that there, there, there is that impact. There are those outcomes that start to happen where recognizing that bias and how it turns into the practice itself, you, you start to see that, wow, it really is making an impact. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Just sort of what, what, what are those outcome measures and, and how do we sort of look at those a little bit more to see that recognizing bias is leading to something? 
Yeah, I, I, I have seen a lot of counties, um, and even just within San Bernardino County, just within the different regions that I've worked in, I worked in one region as the social worker, another region as a supervisor, and just seeing how they really address like outcome measures, how they address diversity and inclusion, how they address you know, recognizing bias. So some of them might do a little pilot on like a blind removal. Some of them, um, I, you know, they have their um, ICPM meetings every month. They might be, you know, calling out the data on that. So I, I think, I think I see leadership wanting to do better, but starting with data. I don't know if everybody sees that, but I have seen that at least in the regions that I have worked in. They start with the data. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the data just begins to tell the story. Like it kind of, okay, this is where we're at, but then you have to go way deeper down into practice. You know, you can't just say, why are, you know, children that come from families of color having less timely CFTs and go into an ICPM meeting and say, okay, social workers, you need to do more timely CFT meetings. That's not going to fix the problem. You know, it's really looking at individual practices, maybe even, you know, going down to the certain region, going down to the certain unit, going down to which workers in that unit, you know, which workers are able to have timely CFTs for all their clients. And why is that happening? What's going on in their practice that they value every family the same, that every family needs to have a timely CFT versus some other ones. And does that worker even realize that that's happening in their practice? They may not. They may, they may say, no, I always do timely CFTs. And then when you kind of look at the data, oh, it's really only this kind of client that's getting a timely CFT and these ones aren't. So I also think I hear, at least in the ICPM meetings that I'm at every month, a lot of the words being thrown around, the diversity, the inclusion, the bias, and they really don't necessarily know what each of those mean. They kind of use them interchangeably. Um, and there was a, I can't remember if it was a lunch and learn that we did at the academy here. Um, and I can't even remember the presenters, <laughs> but it was a, it was a lunch and learn, I think on uh, implicit bias and microaggressions. Uh, that we see in the workplace or in our practice. And there is a, a quote that I took out of that. And I actually used it several times in coaching um, big groups um, at the ICPM meeting that I was coaching at. And it was that diversity means that everybody's having a seat at the table. So for instance, like if you're if you're having a CFT with a family and you invite all these people to the CFT and we have um, all different kinds of people from all different kinds of walks of life. You have social workers and other professionals. Maybe it's like a drug and alcohol counselor or some sort of mental health uh, counselor there. You might have the supervisor. You might have education liaison. Maybe it's like a DV, you know, counselor. And then the family also has all of their support people. Maybe it's people from uh, their neighborhood, people from whatever religious affiliation they might have, you have people all different ages and sexes and 
uh, ethnicities, and they're all having a seat at the table. That's awesome. Our CFTs also have to be inclusive. So inclusion is where everyone at that table gets to have a voice and they get to have a say-so. So our table is diverse and it's also inclusive because we're allowing everybody to say what they need to say. And then I feel like the conversation stops there. And this is why I loved this quote that came out of that Lunch and Learn is because it goes on to say, but bias is why some of the voices are listened to more than others. And so, yes, everybody can be at your table and you can allow everybody to have a say. So you can go around your CFT and grandma, what do you think? And pastor, what do you think? And uncle, what do you think? Mom, dad, kids, what do you think? But bias is when you're listening to only the social worker and supervisor in the room and you're not valuing what the families have to say and what their support network has to say. So I feel like that's like the extra step that we need to do um, in child welfare. And I think as coaches, we can, you know, maybe try and call some of that out and help them work through that process of how do we go a little bit deeper into not just get everybody around the table and let everybody have a say so, but value what they have to say and know that they are the experts of their life and we need to value and build upon what they think is going to work for their family. Uh, very well said. I, I would say that's super important to be able to have just sort of the, the equal weight of each person's voice being accounted for and, and being yeah. sort of part of you know, what their, their journey and their next step is going to be like, cause like you said, they're the, they're the experts in their story. And so of course they have folks who are part of their support network. That's going to, you know, you know, go into what that next step is going to look like for them. And so, you know, why not value that just as much as, you know, the next person or, you know, the, the workers or the professionals in the room bring that from the support network. Cause that's really going to be highly um, important to the impact for the family. Now, I, I definitely, you know, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier and, and really sort of diving now into the different kinds of bias going beyond, of course, what we know um, on the surface level of race, culture, gender, but you also mentioned positive sentiment override and negative sentiment override. I'm not sure a lot of people know about that. Can you share a little mm -hmm. bit more about that? Definitely. Yeah. This is what I see a lot in my coaching practice. And uh, I don't know that every coach does, but maybe I'm, I'm paying extra attention to it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, sometimes um, social workers will come to a coach and they'll want to map a family. You know, they're, they're maybe on the fence of what decision to make. Should I return? Should I not? I have this court hearing coming up. I'm not quite sure what to recommend. Um, or maybe the social worker feels one way, like, oh, mom's doing really great. I think we can return. And the supervisor is feeling a different way, like, oh, no, I think she needs more time. Uh, and so they want to come to a coach to map that family and really see what is working well with this family. What are we still worried about? And what are our next steps? And so in those mappings is usually where I see a lot of the positive or negative sentiment override. And I guess the way I think of it in the simplest terms is that's like the lens, which, which, which the social worker is like seeing the family through. So they have a lens where they only see the family through positive terms and they're kind of minimizing or ignoring 
the concerns of the family, or they have this negative lens that they are seeing the family through everything that they do is negative and they can't see any of the strengths that the family has going on. And so as we're mapping, I'll tell like some of the most powerful ones that I have done have been where we went in there with the understanding that the social worker wanted to return the children and thought everything was going great. And the supervisor, you know, you're in your office, you're not out in the field a lot. And so you kind of have to just trust what your worker brings back from the field, but something about it, she just didn't feel right. And so she wanted to map. And so we went into that thinking, okay, you know, we're going to return home and then doing the mapping the social worker had so many positive things to say, you know, what's working well, we filled that whole column. That was no, that was no trouble at all. Um, and when we got to the, what are we worried about? There wasn't too much. Um, until I started probing a little bit. Right. And I think it's when we got to the sorting part of our mapping, where we start labeling, you know, the working wells, we're going to label them. Is that just a strength? that mom has, or is it actually a protective action that mom is doing that's going to mitigate the danger for that child? And then labeling the worries, is that just um, maybe like a complicating factor that we don't really like, but it's not necessarily creating danger? Or is it an actual danger for that child that we really have to pay attention to? That's an actual safety threat from your safety assessment, and we need to address that. And so when we did that mapping, we realized mom has tons of strengths, but not a single protective action that would actually keep that kid safe. There's lots of good things. And I think the worker was really caught up in all that. Like I said, we get caught up in our emotions sometimes, you know, we get really connected to our families after you've worked with them for six months or a year or more. And then when we looked at the worries, the safety threats were still there. And she wasn't, she didn't have a lot of complicating factors, but the safety threats were still there. And so when I said, like, let's compare these two lists, you know, what in this, in this column of what's working really well is going to actually counteract that safety threat. And she realized, oh my goodness, I I would have returned these kids home. And that safety threat is still there. And it isn't being addressed. And so we had to go back to the family and she's like, I'm so glad I didn't talk to them about, I'm going to recommend that your kids come home at this next hearing. I'm so glad I didn't say something like that. Cause we still have work to do. Um, and then on the opposite, you know, I've been in mappings where, um, you know, the social worker came in and they just can't stand this family, this family, every time they call it just you know, they don't want to pick up the phone. Working with this family is just the bane of their existence. They want to quit their job over this family. And, you know, we do this mapping and realize that family is actually being really safe and very protective. They do have a lot of complicating factors, but the safety threat isn't there. And so we left that, that meeting with a recommendation to return the kids. And this worker was thinking, I'm never going to return those kids. That family is a nightmare to work with. But in trying to address some of that negative sentiment override or the positive sentiment override, you know, addressing that is what 
what kind of helps them make a better decision on their case. And so everybody left the room with more clarity, knowing what's actually happening and not being so fogged over with that lens of negative or positive sentiment override. Hey, yeah, there's a, there's almost that like intentional slowing down process to really yes. sort of analyze and dive deep into, okay, what's really coming up for me and also what's really there. What's, what's, at, you know, going to be a direct impact on, is this child going to be safe or is this child in, in harm and danger? So then, yeah, I think that slowing down process is so essential to being able to recognize that bias. And so I, and especially how you talked about it now, that mapping process is how you've worked with uh, learners to be able to coach through that bias. Are, are there other um, biases that maybe you've experienced or that you're able to name um, or even, you know, in, in, in addressing some of those bias, like how have you coached through workers and more examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in practice, a lot of people think that bias um, automatically associates to something like race or ethnicity or a certain uh, gender or something like that. And bias is, I mean, it's just, we all have biases, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a negative thing or a positive thing, Um I think some of the more common ones that I see are, um, I think like what, for instance, what leads to a lot of the positive sentiment override that I see is um, an affinity bias where they somehow relate to that family, that that family is kind of similar to me or similar to the family that I grew up in, or they like the same hobbies as me. or So, you know, that kind of creates some of that positive sentiment override. Um, I also see social workers struggling with an anchor bias and anchor bias is where you have like that first bit of information about the family. Um, and I was a, a carrier social worker, which is like a back-end social worker. And a, I was also a back-end supervisor. And so, yeah, that first bit of information that you get about that family is not good. Obviously they've just had their children removed. Um, but they stick with that information or they, they get the case and they immediately say that family is not getting reunified. This is a really bad case. And they stick with that. They base all of their future information on that. And they're not kind of updating their thoughts or their beliefs or their outlook as new information comes in. I see that a lot of times. Um, also, I, I see a lot of young social workers or new social workers struggling with the, the bandwagon kind of bias, you know, where uh, everybody thinks this kind of thing. And so I'm just going to kind of jump on it. So I fit in or either they're, they think that they're learning or modeling what more experienced social workers are doing. Um, I'm trying to think. What are some other ones? Um, from I think you those naming are... those, like I, yeah. it already kind of sparked some some ones that I had in mind too. I mean, like I, I love how you you kind of, you know, mentioned that there there's so many other biases that lead to decision making and and lead to just what that path is going to look like. Um, I immediately thought about confirmation bias, so just like yes. like you said of. I have this idea in mind and I'm, I'm looking for all the evidence that's going to confirm what I think and believe and, and let that shape 
my decision as opposed to it being, you know, just naturally going through the process with the family and learning more, like you said, and being open to, yes. to that change in um, the direction of the case. Definitely. Um, another one I thought about as well is, I, I don't, I'm not sure if this is a bias or just whatever it could be, but just like I, I'm seeing a lot of sort of like um, newer uh, social workers coming into the field. And, and as they're going out into the field, there, there's almost this feeling when they start interacting with um, folks who are maybe older or, or folks who are, um, you know, just naturally uh, older than them, for example, as they're going into the field, there's just sort of feeling like, oh, you know, like, uh, how do I interact with, with folks who are just a different age, for yeah. example. Um, yeah. So I see that too. Yeah. Or I, I don't have kids and I'm younger than them. Right, and how am I going right. to tell them how they should be parenting? Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. which is a very normal thing for, I think, social workers or therapists mm -hmm. or, you know, anybody who's working with families and is kind of put in the expert role, mm -hmm. you know, that even, you know, if you don't feel that you're the expert, you're sometimes just put into that category and you're supposed to know everything, even though you have no lived experience with that. And I think that's where we have to have the cultural humility to say, I'm not an expert. You're the expert of your family and you know what works for you guys. And how can I help support that? How can I take those strengths that you guys already have and support that so that we can use what's already working well for you to eliminate the danger? And then I don't have to be involved anymore. And whether I have kids or I've raised kids or whether I'm 50 years old or 25 years old, I can still help you with that process. I'm still an outside observer. I can be a little more objective than you, just like us coaches. Yes. I, I think the perfect word to use, uh, humility, because that, that sort of gives that, that space to be able to take that pressure off, but also to almost show that to the families that you know, we're, we're humans, you know, we, we don't necessarily know all the things. And, you know, of course, how can we come into a space where we're, we know everything about this family and we don't, you know, I, I think being very transparent about what that looks like. And I'm sure most families can see that as like, Hey, this, this, this human being who's across from me, they're very transparent with me and they're really open to being able to support me how best I can feel. I need that support. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, going into, you know, a couple of our last questions, you know, how, how do, how do workers start to recognize this bias a little bit more in a way that becomes a little bit more of their practice, a little bit becomes more natural. Um, and do you feel like there's others who may be able to kind of support in pointing it out initially as they go along? Definitely. Um, I, I think the easiest way to recognize bias is to look for things that are starting to frustrate you or activate you or what are those buttons that you notice are getting pushed. And so if you are a person that somebody's doing something and you feel frustrated, you feel um, attacked, you feel, um, you know, this person's calling me out or they're, I, I don't know how to, there's probably a lot of different ways that people feel, but I think if you are feeling activated in a certain way, I think that's where you pause. Why? Why is this so frustrating to me? What is it about that other person, that other person's behavior? Maybe it's how they look. Maybe it's how they talk. Maybe it's a certain behavior. Um, but what, what is it about that situation that's so frustrating you? 
and then look backwards. Has this ever happened before? Have I ever been activated by somebody like this before? And what is that about? How far back can you go? Um, maybe you need to do a little bit of like shadow work as Carl Jung would say, you know, like go back and look at some of your history in your childhood. Look at when was the first time that that happened to you? And maybe we need to heal that situation a little bit. You need to resolve that a little bit and then, and then walk yourself forward. Okay. This happened. Okay. I know why I was being activated by that. I know what they said. Okay. I can recognize that. And then going forward. Okay. I remember that I that happened. I was activated there. Okay. Got it. And then you can maybe start calling out those behaviors, you know, that this is what is really setting me off and then come up with a plan. So I know that I'm going to be upset. For instance, right now I'm coaching someone who is very upset. Anytime they get handed a case and the dad is a DV perpetrator. And she knows she's going to get a lot of those cases as a social worker. That's just something that's going to happen. And so she is learning to recognize, okay, I'm starting to feel this way. What is my plan? What do I need to do? And so she's developing some coping skills. She's um, coming up with kind of a script, I guess you could call it, so that when she's on the phone with these gentlemen, she can kind of have that to fall back on so that she's not getting into a power struggle. She's not, you know, getting upset and agitated and slamming down the phone and her, her day is ruined, but she can kind of fall back on this like planning that we've already done so that she's, she's ready to recognize it and she knows what to do when it happens. So I think a coach is great to do that with. I think if you're a social worker, I think your supervisor is, you know, great to do that with, to tell your supervisor, I'm having issues with this kind of client and know that when I come to supervision or case consultation or whatever different counties call it, I need to be able to talk through this and I need you to check me on it. I need you to call me out if you feel like my decisions are being biased in a certain way. And, um, if you see that anywhere in my practice, you know, I need my coworkers, my supervisor, whoever it is that hears about my cases and consults with me on it. I need them to check me on my work and make sure that I'm being objective. Absolutely. And, and, and being able to recognize the, that it's not a bad thing to have bias come up. You know, I think a lot of times no. folks may feel like, oh, you know, it, it, I feel so terrible that this is coming up and I feel this way towards this family. It, it, it's sort of, you know, it comes up differently for each person and, and being able to slow down, recognize like, hey, this is coming up for me. And then how do I take the steps to be able to navigate through that? And kind of like how, how you talked about being able to seek out that support, being open to share, and then also being able to come up with strategies that help to mm -hmm. mitigate some of that impact that's going to be now crossing over to um, who I'm interacting with. Yeah. And I would say if you, if you are not having biases come up and you're not able to recognize those, then you're not growing. So I think if you're having them come up and you are dealing with them, you're doing some shadow work, maybe you're consulting with your supervisor about it, whatever it is that you're doing, then you're moving forward in your practice. You are growing, you are becoming better. If you're not going to address it, then your practice is never going to get better. And the service that you do for your clients is never going to improve. So it's a good thing that they come up. Well said. 
Well, first, I, I definitely want to say, you know, thank you so much for just spending this time um, being able of to course. talk about this important topic for sure, um, because it's really going to lead to continual growth and continued development for workers. So I definitely want to thank you first and then ask, you know, are there any, you know, final takeaways or last words you'd like to share for our, our listeners before we depart? Hmm. I don't know. That's that's a wide open question, Charlie. <laughs> it, I know it's very wide open, and I mean to a certain extent, I, I think you shared a little bit of that already, which is just being able to um, continue to grow and continue to um, find a way yeah. to develop. Yeah, yeah. Just spend some time in self reflection. Um, maybe drag a friend into it with you. <laughs> bring bring your supervisor into it. Bring a coworker into it. Yeah, just spend some time in self-reflection, trying to be insightful and, and look at yourself, look at things that activate you. How can we do better? How can we do better for ourselves and continue to grow? And how can we do better for the clients that we serve? Yep, well said, well said. Great. Well, thank you again. And then for our listeners, thank you again for tuning in. We'll be back with another episode and we look forward to having you continue on as listeners. Take care, everyone. Thank you.